Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got an award-winning multi-hyphenate that you may have seen on TV, a Broadway stage, or packing out a big theater near you, in conversation with a guy whose equally riveting work has mostly been behind the scenes, Sarah Bareilles and Rob Moose. I'm not sure where to begin with Sarah Bareilles' resume. She found fame with her music, with songs like Brave and Love Song topping the charts. But in addition to making huge records, she's been a judge on NBC's The Sing-Off. She wrote the music and lyrics for, then eventually starred in the Broadway production of Waitress. And she co-created the Apple TV series Little Voice and acted in the Peacock series Girls 5 Eva. And honestly, this is all just the tip of the iceberg. You will be surprised by how remarkably down-to-earth she seems in this conversation. I was. Now, Rob Moose met Bareilles when he was asked to do some string arrangements for her at a Lincoln Center event organized by Ben Folds. For the past 20 years, that's the kind of work Moose has mostly done. His expert strings have added color and wonder to music by everyone from Sufjan Stevens and the Decemberists to Taylor Swift. He's been a member of Bon Iver and performed live with Jay-Z. Chances are very good that you've heard him without ever hearing his name, because it wasn't until this year that he decided to release music under his own name. It was while on tour with Paul Simon that Moose had the idea to collaborate with some amazing singers, setting their voices to his strings and nothing more. The result is an EP called Inflorescence, which features Emily King, Brittany Howard, Phoebe Bridgers, Bon Iver's Justin Vernon, and, perhaps you guessed by now, Sarah Bareilles. It's a fantastic, unexpected set of songs that brings out the best in both the strings and the voices. Check out a little bit of Moose and Bareilles on the song Extract. To say at least I'm alive Seems so melodramatic No evidence suggests that a heart within someone's chest can bruise No longer be used Simply from losing love In this conversation, these two chat about how a Craigslist ad changed Moose's life, about how Borellis was a bit gun-shy about collaborating early in her career, and about how you've got to really want to live in New York City, which they both seem to want to do. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming. I'm always happy to talk to you. You're one of my favorites in a lot of ways, musician and as human. Um, that's incredible. And it's so exciting to get to talk to you and to have this excuse to talk to you because I have felt since the first time I met you like very familiar and comfortable and like safe being myself with you but that's really that's really only been based on just how you make people feel because I feel like you're just very directly you and there's no kind of artifice or like wall or anything but I actually there's like so much that I don't know about you and 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 it was fun and intimidating to read your wikipedia page today like like you should be like 90 with all the things you've done It's literally insane. <laughs> I feel 90 these days. <laughs> so do I. Yeah, jeez. That's yeah. oh um, so funny. My, I, When I met you, I was fully prepared to not like you because you. I was so intimidated by like your resume and also like 
your like reputation as being like a savant essentially but then you were such good friends with Ben Folds right who's a very good friend of mine and I was like okay Ben's not friends with assholes so as far as I know but I could also see Ben being friends with assholes cuz <laughs> like he he would get a kick out like, of it like in a, a way. sport yeah yeah, yeah kind of like that um and then I met you and I thought you were so delightful and you're very funny and funny is a really great window in don't you think or a doorway into relationship yeah i guess because it involves like risk taking yeah yeah not that people are thinking that way but but like especially when you first meet somebody if you're like if you go for a line yeah go for a moment it's like either you it's either but it's a swing and a miss or yeah yeah probably was (laughs) um and also we met at the kennedy center yeah which is a funny place to meet somebody yeah doing one of Ben's declassified series. Yeah. Where he brings artists down to the Kennedy Center. I felt very intimidated by that whole experience. Kind of like not one of the cool kids. I know I've shared this with you before when I had you as my music director for our 2019 tour for Amidst the Chaos, but I I have always felt like not cool enough for mm. music somehow, even though I just always felt like I, I was, I never really earned my place in the room or something. And then... And then so the Kennedy Center felt very, like, high stakes. And it was awesome. I'm really curious about that origin of what you were saying. You feel like that comes from the kind of music you make or a sense of training or something. I have this very fundamental insecurity about my, like, intellect. Even though oh, wow. I, th- I think I'm a smart person in lots of ways, but there is so much I don't know. And music in particular is a great place to feel stupid uh-huh. <laughs> like especially when you're in rooms with people whose vocabulary is steeped in lots of training it's been a place where i've struggled to feel like i it's okay that i'm there it's okay to have opinions even though i i don't have training or so it's like no amount of an audience that you have changes that feeling because you know that's a weird thing about those shows and it's something that bothers me about the orchestral world sometimes <gasps> Because the chair just broke. <laughs> Did I have you sign the waiver on the way in? <laughs> it's it's clearly a broken chair. This. That's really funny. It just fell through the back of the chair. But you know what? I can sit on the floor. My dog's here. I'm going to just sit on the floor. Okay, on Wait, the... continue. We were talking about something brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yes, we were. Ah, uh, my my intellect. <laughs> I, no, I was going to say that I th- always find in those situations where people from outside of the like the classical world are doing a concert with an orchestra they are stepping into this like hallowed and formal thing but at those concerts they're also bringing like the entirety of the audience mm. and so there's like gratitude for getting to play with like these incredible musicians and and a respect for that tradition and i think increasingly on the orchestra side there is an appreciation for obviously what that that guest artist is bringing too but mm. I, I think the danger sometimes is it's like well you're going to have to come in here and do things on our terms Mm. but it's like your concert right and so i guess the reason i'm bringing that up is because the idea of being intimidated by something i I don't understand where it comes from that it wouldn't work the other way around in those situations and it's Mm. great that you're not going to come in and be like well i sold this thing out and like i want this this and this and do you have to you know with like a bad attitude but i hope that increasingly there is like more of a two-way street with regards to that because it's always been very important to me not to put a premium on one over the other sure. and to try to approach like walking in those various aisles, like with complete equal level of integrity. Well, I think on the one hand you come in to those rooms and you're just, you're outnumbered. <laughs> so yeah. There's one yeah. of you and then a the hundred people on the yeah. other side. And I think one thing that 
I think a lot of artists probably, you wouldn't know this until you do it. It's just like, it's just the latency of, of mm. that many people getting on the same page. I mean, not only the actual physical latency of like where b- the beat feels, it yeah. like takes time to travel across the room, which was wild to me the first time I played with an orchestra. You don't experience it that way in, in the audience mm-hmm. at all, but that must that's something to just like accommodate with your internal meter or whatever. But um, I relate it to the way it feels like working in the theater that bringing new voices and bringing new audience to the theater is like, there's, it's only a good thing, right. you know, and some of it's going to work great and some of it's not going to work great, but it's, it's all good to, to bring people in to hopefully just like gain appreciation for, like you said, this incredible storied craft that has been around forever. Was that, that wasn't the first time you did an orchestral thing though, was it? Like you had done like award show stuff before, I feel like. One time I did, um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and I was inducting Laura Nero. Oh, wow. And we did Stony End with the orchestra. And that was probably one of the first times that I that I had played with an orchestra. And it was sluggish to me. And when I watched it back, I was like, oh, that's not the experience of it at all. But it just felt like my hands were heavy. Yeah. You know, trying to also being terrified because that was like the craziest room I had ever played in front of at that point. Oh, it's just all, I can imagine. It's wild. Yeah. It's just like... The, it's the most fun. That is the that's one of my favorite events. Wow! And when you did that, I think as I've aged, I've gotten less precious about perfectionism. Not to say that like an approximation is fine, but uh-huh. it doesn't matter as much as it used to matter to me. That like I knew what everything was, or I like a little bit. It it actually smacks of a little bit of distrust like uh-huh. if you if you need to control all of the elements that it's kind of means you don't trust anybody's interpretation <laughs> except your own I think at that point I was a little bit more scared of everything and now I feel a little more trusting that whatever it is it'll kind of be fine because you're still carrying the song from the center forward so it's like it would take a lot I think to make it unsuccessful um, but you I'm just thinking about that, that like, you know, playing a song and then, and then responding to things that you didn't specifically create and how that might feel. Did you early on start writing collaboratively? I was very private and insulated from a pretty early age. Like I, I wrote songs as a, like starting at like age six or something, wow. like was writing really young. But my first time sharing songs were not super successful. Like I didn't get a lot of like validation. I got more like skepticism. I remember in high school, I, I sang this song and I had been listening to like a lot of Tori Amos at the time. I don't uh-huh. think I understood everything. <laughs> I was just trying to sound like intellectual and interesting. And uh-huh. I don't think anybody understood the song. It was about like a drowning water dancer. So I don't even know what I was saying wow. at this point. Um, and then... I got really shy. So, like, the song was not well-received. What age is that? I was, like, probably 16. So you played it at a concert? At, like, a at concert school at school. Yeah, like a choir concert. Yeah, so I got really private about my composition. I always felt comfortable singing. My, mm-hmm. fam- my older sister sang. I loved singing in front of people. That part felt easier. Um, but I was very private about what I was writing. But was always kind of accumulating all these songs and then I guess it was after college I'd started playing like little private shows I knew really early on that I didn't want to be a band I always wanted Mm. to sort of stay independent of that Um, and every sort of version of collaboration I had 
affirmed that. Like, oh. and when I got sort of set up on co-writes, when I got my record deal, I had some really painful, bad co-writes. So I didn't, I didn't really open back up to collaboration until like about maybe 10 years ago. And then I've now realized what a waste that I didn't understand how powerful it could be. I wrote with Jack Antonoff and then, yeah, then I started having more fun with what's possible with collaboration. Like when it's good, it's like on it's unparalleled it's mm -hmm. it's so much fun it's so much bigger than yourself which is the point and actually i think working on waitress is, which is so deeply collaborative that was like the biggest gift of all to sort of realize the the depth of what collaboration could look and feel like because making a musical is the most collaborative thing yeah. on planet earth Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. I think my path has been coming from just seriously studying an instrument, but always kind of growing up as a, as a listener of popular music, for lack of a better word, and not understanding how my instrument that I studied, violin, could interface with that until moving here to New York for college and seeing people play in clubs like Tonic and small to medium places where music was obviously amplified, but I was starting to see in the early 2000s like violins and cellos and other instruments. I was going to these concerts as just like a, a listener and, and, and trying to learn more about music, but when I started to see things that were familiar to what I was doing, I realized there was this whole other potential area to explore. And so right away it became about collaboration. Instead of like collaborating with music that's written down on a piece of paper, it became about like interacting with a songwriter's idea with their material and um it took a while till i was actually writing any arrangements myself but i was always like just trying to help give voice to 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 that central idea and and that just kind of rewired my brain like right away it was very addictive to be able to like use the skills i had learned but in in a, a place that felt more closely related to what my experience had always been as a listener is there an artist you recall seeing that like sort of changed the atmosphere for you? 
there was this one night at Tonic, and it was like a John Zorn thing. Um, it was like the Masada String Trio or, or this other project of his like that where there was like Eric Friedlander was playing cello and mm. Mark um, Mark Feldman mm-hmm. playing violin and seeing them improvise, but just just seeing a microphone in front of them uh. was like a novel sight for me. Yeah. And, and also seeing people standing in like a sweaty room and like having a drink and just feeling like these people are playing really seriously and they're playing the same instruments that I, I'm, I'm always either playing or playing with, but they're doing it here. And like, this is where I want to be as a listener. Nobody was talking about that at, at school at that, at that point. I think they are talking about that stuff a lot more now, but because in college I started playing guitar because I wanted to play in bands and I wanted to play that kind of music. And I just didn't think that violin would be a thing. Yeah. But I, I answered a Craigslist ad in 2003 um, when I was like a junior in college. And it was for this singer, Sharon Nova, who had a group at the time called My Brightest Diamond. And it was like a string quartet and her playing sort of prepared guitar. Like she would put like like a pencil in and it would like mm-hmm. create this. like. And um, she wrote her own arrangements and it was really cool music. And through her, I met Sufjan Stevens and Anthony and the Johnsons and The National like all within like two or three years. And like my entire career has like come out of the answering that Craigslist ad. That is so wild. You like beelined to all of the coolest, like the the most interesting, the coolest, the most credible artists. Like, of course you did. But it was all stuff that I wasn't aware of as a listener. I didn't know what indie rock was because mm-hmm. I was like listening to like world music and classic rock and jazz. And I had no idea what was going on. I have to show you pictures of me on like the first tour. Like I went to the... Anthony Johnson's won the Mercury Prize the year that I did the touring, and I was like on the red carpet with <laughs> with Anoni and and the cellist Julia, and I was wearing like a red T-shirt from Zara and like the worst jeans I've ever seen, and I had like a <laughs> like a buzz cut, and it's insane. And I'm like with these two like fashion icon like incredible people, <laughs> and I, I I that's just like I was saying. I look back on these things and I'm like, how was I there? Like yeah. I guess I was pretty good at playing, but like, I I don't, I was like such a fish out of water with this stuff, but I feel very fortunate that I feel like New York was really my school. You know, I came here for, to study at a conservatory, but I I got trained by this whole place. Yeah. That's what's so special about this very chaotic, dirty city. So you're new. I lived in LA. I went to UCLA and I lived in LA for 15 years. Okay. And that's where I got, you know, the beginning of my music career started there. But I moved to New York kind of on a whim, thinking I would stay for a year. Uh I had a little house in Venice, and I was happy in my life there. I mean, relatively speaking, maybe a little bit bored. Mm. Like, I I remember after my second record, it was really easy to start seeing the pattern of what it looked like to be a recording artist and the cyclical nature of making a record and going on tour. And I started to feel really claustrophobic about that. It wasn't that at that time I was like, oh, I want to make television or write a book or do a musical. I wasn't thinking any of those things. I just was like, well, I can now predict the next 30 years of my life. And I'm like not interested in being able to do that. I get like squidgy if I know where I'm getting coffee from the same day. I need things to change and to stay interesting. And I came to New York just thinking I'd stay for a year and have, you know, an adventure. And the way I describe it is just that the version of myself that I encountered the girl that lived here mm. was so much more interesting than the girl that lived in LA. And it kind of had almost nothing to do with me and everything to do with New York. Right. It just felt like New York was this portal into all these different kinds of creative people and unpredictability and 
I know you've had a million of these, like these New York nights that just unfold and they take all these left turns and you're like, how did I end up at a indoor garden party where they've like created a garden and there's a guy playing saxophone in the corner and I'm like <laughs> having a martini with, I, it was just like so bizarre and exciting and um, just felt really alive. So yeah, 10 years ago and now wow. I, I don't imagine I'll ever go back. And it's, and it's the thing about New York. I mean, it's hard. It's hard yeah. on you. It's physically hard. It's, I moved here in the middle of winter and it was very cold and I didn't have the right jacket. Like I was cold all the time. <laughs> just uh-huh. Getting groceries is complicated. And if you don't have a washer dryer, you have to like go carry your laundry somewhere and figure it out. But there's something to me about because of the hardship of being here, just logistically, you have to really want to stay here. It's self-selecting or... or Yes, uh, exactly. Pruning. I'm grateful that I came here first because I didn't know how hard all that stuff was. Like, like I'm trying to think if it was like 15 years before I had a dishwasher or something and and laundry and like, yeah. No, I found it very quaint because I had all those things in Los Angeles and then I came back and I was like, ah, hilarious. I have to carry my laundry somewhere. (laughs) And then that got, that wore off its welcome really quick. And then I got a place with a, you know, washer dryer. (laughs) Yeah. Living here, did that make the Broadway thing more inevitable or would that have happened? I think way? that's the only reason that happened. Okay. I think even though when I think back on my my late teens and early 20s, I think I on some level thought I would pursue theater because my mom was on stage. She's a, an actor. My sister was on stage. Both my sisters were on stage. My oldest sister was a singer and, and did a lot of musical theater. So the, I watched a lot of community musical theater growing up. And it was by far my favorite art form. Like I, wow. I like devoured those records of the shows that I had seen her be in. What were you listening to growing up? Like, like little, like like, uh, like 10, 11, 12. What were you listening like to? Like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. I oh, see so you were just fucking cool already. Like, no, is that cool? Yes. That, but that was just like oh what God, was on so the radio. Yeah. Um, no, I was a hardcore Peter Cetera fan. I really loved, I liked very romantic music. Mm. I was a big Mickey Mouse Club fan. I oh, just... wow. I think maybe uh, partly I was listening to that stuff also because of what I was studying. I had like 17th century music like all the time and I had a great love for that. But then I also was like an 11-year-old boy and I wanted loud, fast thing, you know. Yeah. And I always like tried to approach my violin. I always tried to figure out how to play those songs there. Yeah. And it's so interesting that now all these years later, like I realized that I've been kind of on this path of trying to reconcile those those interests this whole time and like mm. now starting to be able to get to do it in certain ways. Let's talk about the thing you just did. Well, yeah, you were the first person I asked. I, I For the last, I don't know, 10 years or something, I've been gradually getting more curious about what it would be like to try to make music where there was just strings and voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that started because I would hear sometimes in the studio when I would be recording strings, they would solo all the strings and then they would add the vocal back in. And everybody would say like, oh, this should just be the song. Mm-hmm. But like nobody ever did it. Yeah. Or sometimes they would take my strings and make like an interlude track out of them or something. And I started to just realize that the thing that I was making in service of something else, in collaboration with something else, could be its own standalone entity. Yeah. So I thought like, what if you take out all of the crutches and all of the signifiers and contextualizers and it's just me and the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, nowhere to hide because often in an arrangement, you can just be like, if you start at the beginning, you can disappear and come back and like oh the drums come in here like we don't need me and, right and you know because I, I don't want to ever make an arrangement that's just like wallpaper yeah. um and like i'm obsessed with exits but when there's nothing else there's nothing else and so i thought what if i 
ask around and see if anybody would let me play around with something just as an experiment. And um, I just met you and seeing you in that context with the orchestra, I think just felt like, oh, wow, this could really work. I feel like your voice and your songs, not like they exclusively want that type of treatment, but it seemed like a harmonious place. Mm. And um, and you sent me, I actually just listened to it again for the first time since 2018, like the original version of, of the song. Mm-hmm. I was on tour with, with Paul Simon for the Farewell Tour. I was in Austin and we had a day off and I was like, just needing to, you know, been playing these masterpieces uh, in those concerts, but like playing a really small role in a bigger machine with like 11 people on stage. And, and I was so excited to get into the hotel room and like set up my, my mobile recording rig and just try to figure out like what would happen if it was just your voice. And then mm. I had to supply the rest. So cool. And I did the whole thing like that in, in two days there in this like sweaty world. <laughs> I had just gotten these microphones and I was traveling around with them for the first time as a way of like kind of dealing with being on tour and the repetitiveness of it. I had no idea where I was going. I just was like make a drone and then mm. like and somehow I was struck by listening to the song again like that it is in this sort of verse form that I had forgotten about because when I ended up approaching it I sort of tried to treat it more like opera or something or like mm. a like art song where like where it's it's sort of like stanzas of poetry kind of coming out but like it's through composed essentially I don't ever really like repeat anything and it and it starts with just your voice and 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 notes like just start filling in over time and and then you really get somewhere completely different at a certain point and then toward the end of the song I try to reveal like where the song actually came from by like referencing the original chord progression of course no one had heard that so mm. It was just so exciting. I felt like I had found the hardest thing I could possibly work on and something that I I, I wanted to do hundreds of times because it was Mm. such a thrill. So you really opened that door for me. I felt so honored that you even were like inviting me to, you know, collaborate in this way. And as listening to the song through a totally different lens, like hearing it sort of reimagined, even though I felt like there were enough of the original DNA there, but I thought it, it's the best thing that collaboration can offer. It was more than the sum of its parts. It just was, it was so beautiful. I'm so proud of it. Me too. I guess it's been five years since that creative process happened. And I've only gotten to do it like, you know, five or six times. So if anyone's listening who has not heard it, you, it is just stunning. You have Emily King, Phoebe Bridgers, me. Who else is on there? Brittany Howard. And Brittany Howard. Oh, my God. Justin from Bon Iver. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's a wrecking crew of singers. It's a re- <laughs> such an honor. And um, in the process of do- doing the five was like starting with, with yours. And the, the first couple that I did were like these songs that were completely finished that where I was kind of like playing a role somewhere between a ranger and like remixer or something. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the process, the last one I did with Emily, I actually was playing guitar for my son Milo, who was like five months old at the time. And I started playing this little pattern for him. And I was like, this sounds like Emily. And when he took a nap, I ran upstairs and made a whole demo and sent it to her and, and then just bothered her for like three or four months <laughs> and got her to write over the over this guitar demo and then erased everything I did in the same way that I had done with any of the other tracks and started over with the strings. And So, so cool. I also feel like not only just as an arranger and like a collaborator, it pushed me, but then it also kind of inspired me to try to start writing. I would imagine that you... You play mm. so much. You're so musical. 
You have an incredible sense of melody. You're incredibly intelligent. Like, what do you think has kept you from seeing yourself as a writer until now? I think because collaboration was there from the beginning, I similarly had an outsider feeling like to what you've described where maybe coming from the classical world and like coming up in with notation, I think I always felt like I'm an interpreter and then, and mm. then I'm a person who can comment on and interact with the, with the main idea, but I never, I just didn't have any experience like writing from scratch. Yeah. I sort of found a lane and uh, I think it's, it's so much easier to start when something is there, even if you remove something or you play over something and get rid of that after. Uh, but the idea of just starting with a blank page was really foreign to me and really, mm. really scary. And now it seems like so easy, not easy, I shouldn't say that, but it seems much more natural because like the seal has been broken mm. where I feel like stuff I would have previously considered like not enough to be something is like just the thing that gets you started and you sure. don't have to judge it. I'm, I'm really envious of people who will play a C chord in a certain way and be like, I've just started something. And I think it's easy when you've been trained a lot to be like, that's just a C chord. Mm. But to somebody else, it's like, no, it's like a sound. It's a tempo. It's a mm -hmm. feeling. It's this moment in the room. I could imagine that being tricky because yes. you sort of learn how like the mode in which to interface and to like engage with the material you're like oh i do it this way and you yeah to, and, and i think what's what can be incredibly useful as an accompanist or whatever the right word is is like can be really an obstruction as a purely creative person so i'm curious what you think about this as you push into new territory and like work in different aspects of creativity like how do you like welcome in new facets to your your output and your expression without kind of like losing your core sense of like who you are and how you make things I'm not entirely sure that I don't uh -huh. <laughs> lose a little bit of something, but I think there is something that is developing in in its place, and I'm I'm actually like kind of in conversation with that as as we speak because it's interesting to hear you talk about you know seeing yourself differently or or just like being open to taking on this kind of new mode of expression, and I feel like I'm seeing that a lot in friends of mine and artists I know and actors I know, mm. especially in theater who are now making pieces for themselves, writing for themselves for the first time. And it almost feels like they didn't feel like they had permission to do it right. before. And now I don't know what is shifting where we like, we're telling mm -hmm. ourselves we're so limitless these days that everyone seems more open towards like trying on new things, which I think does for one bring up this sense of beginner's mind, which is an intoxicating place to be, especially if you love the process of creativity. So doing something you've never done before that you have an affinity for mm -hmm. is, I think, maybe the greatest fucking drug on planet Earth. Like working on Waitress, for example, I'd never written a musical before. I didn't have any understanding of my own capacity to be able to do that. It felt like standing mm -hmm. on the edge of a cliff. And then I just loved doing it so much. And it was the longest, most tedious, like brain-bending, yeah. traumatizing process. And I was completely in love with it. And so then it, it's hard not to get curious about, you know, what if I make a television show? And it turns out like, oh, I didn't, I didn't love making the television show as like creator as much as I like being on a television show as uh, an actor. Like I'm learning these things. And of course, I realize I'm sitting from a very privileged position. Not everyone can be like, mm, I'd like to try being on a television show. And then there it is. But um, just as a, an observer of the creative process, I think you kind of have to let go of 
that sense of, I know how I do this. Uh I I was having this conversation the other night at a party with a friend. He's in a new Broadway musical, and there's a lot of people who have a long history coming into the room, and it feels like there's a lot of people saying, I know exactly how I do this. I know what I need for my process. And and to me, it's funny because it, it can look like mastery, but it also feels like that's also insecurity. It's like when you start to get into this place where you're like, I can only make things Mm. one way. Mm -hmm. It's actually kind of speaking for this sense of fear that you don't really know how you make it at all. So you like lean on these patterns or habits. And I mean, I don't even know if this theory is true or not. It's kind of something I'm testing out for myself. You and I were talking before we started recording about we both are kind of new to having these office spaces where I recently moved to Brooklyn and um, there's not really a a spot in my house that I can record in. So I I got a little outside um, studio space. And so it's new for me to to start developing the skill set of I go to my office to make work. It's always been something that there's been boundaryless in terms of like work life mm-hmm. separation. But I guess that boundarylessness I think is kind of an interesting place to make from where you don't actually quite know what it is. And I think the only thing that I will say that I've observed maybe in myself to an extent but definitely in, in other people as well is like you just can't get cocky about it. If you uh-huh. don't know what the fuck you're doing, like don't act like you do. I think th- I think having reverence and humility is like essential in every in every path you choose to walk because all of the sort of force you bring with you, like life force you bring with you and creative force you bring with you can get eclipsed by ego really quickly. Yeah. You know, it's it's really fun to work in a new medium with someone who hasn't been there before because there's a lot of excitement and you might bring new perspective. But it's really obnoxious to work with people in a new medium when they're like, well, why does it have to be that way? Can't we just do it? Yeah, and this other thing I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. I've just been sort of almost in some ways like scared of if if I open up this new artistic pathway, is that going to start replacing this other thing that I've done that I still really care about? I think you have to trust that that's not going anywhere. Right. I say that as, as like someone who needs to hear that as well. It's not that I haven't spent sleepless nights or even like tears on worrying about have I lost some essential part of myself because I don't work the same way I did when I was 18 and it was so it was this like clubhouse I went to like music was this little Mm. treehouse I would climb up into and it was so sacred and it remains so sacred to me but you know as we evolve and grow and gather experience like, of course we don't relate to it the same way. We, yeah. we bring, you have your relationship with your son. Like, yeah. that, is, that is going to inform your work. Yeah. And I really felt that in just like a purely practical way as far as like the hours that I can keep. It can be easy when you're younger or from looking in from the outside to sort of romanticize the creative process and be like, oh, I just had to play that note or I just had to write that song. And, and I've never really been super on that side of the fence. But now I really have to be like, I can be in here from 12 to 5 if I've got more to do. I come back after he goes to sleep and mm-hmm. I'm stealing that from my, my own sleep and, um, and that's it. And then I have to wait till tomorrow. Yeah. And, and so by the time I get here every day, I am burning with like desire to make music because yeah. I've just had this like enriching morning watching a three-year-old 
make up games for four hours in a row and like be incredibly present. And he notices the second that I'm drifting and he makes me hold a stuffed animal and speak in its voice, like uh-huh. to keep me in the game, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, I'm learning attention span that like I've unlearned wow. and then I'm his audience. And then I come here and it's like, I've got so much to say. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, I think it's, it can be kind of powerful to have to wait till the next day rather than, you know, the sort of diminished returns and, um, I'm kind of loving it. I wish I had a little bit more time or I wish I didn't need to sleep as much. I wish the days were a little longer, like all that stuff. <laughs> but I think that's that's like fuel. He's only going to be this age I know, for a minute. So yeah. I think it's really beautiful that you can acknowledge that and that you're prioritizing like all of that time. I think that's so special. I can't imagine a scenario in which you look back and regret having done that. Yeah, I, <laughs> like, I wish. Yeah, I wish yeah. I'd spent more time in the office. <laughs> yeah, totally. no, and, and yeah, like getting it out of the house too has been interesting because I, for ten years, like just did recording in one of the bedrooms in the apartment, and yeah. and I think I was a little bit reluctant to accept that I deserved or had enough consistent work to like warrant a space. You know, yeah. I like yeah. I kind of really like backed into this thing that I've done, and and. Um, we're still sitting on the floor here, though. You know what I'm saying? We're keeping it real. You borrowed a broken chair. Speaking of baby steps, what is the next thing for you artistically? What What are you What are you doing right now? I think I'm trying to figure that out. Like, I, I'd like to keep doing the type of work that I just explored on this EP, but it was really important to me to be to have all these rules about it. Like, there's not going to be any instruments or in strings, and there's and you know, in voice, and and I'm kind of curious now that I've sort of sufficiently proven to myself that that can be done like to be more open about it and like let the material dictate how it should go but maybe also try to dig in with somebody and make a project where there's like more of a through line Mm. um just sort of double down but be more relaxed about it and not have to be as as in control of the process because i i know i can do it so i don't have to like prove that to myself anymore yeah Um, i love that idea i can't wait to hear what comes from you thank you and like one other challenge of that, I think for me is like, can I start with the strings without having changed what somebody else did first? Because that's been such an interesting part of it for me is like the tension of like, I know that this wasn't the chord that was there and it, and it affects the message in this way and it makes that moment feel different and there can be a tension and release thing. Like, but can you do that with the music when there's nothing there yet? Mm. I don't know how, how to imagine the uh, tension because like I can't predict what somebody's going to write over right, it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But they could do that to me. Sure. And so that's like another layer of sort of letting go. and yeah, It's like writing a song without a melody and then seeing what somebody... what I want that experience. Yeah. Have you ever done that? <sighs> I don't know why you would. No one would finish it better than you. But. Wow. Thank you. You took the bait. No, um, I haven't written that way before. But I'm such a slow writer that I keep going through, like, I have all these voice memos and... What I'm noticing in my patterns yeah, I right now. need to borrow your phone for it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'll just send you a bunch of shit and you can go through it. But they're just like thoughts, little yeah. musings and, or like a seven minute me just like fucking around on the piano. And I don't even know if there's anything good in there or not. If I get an idea and I, and I get the hint of something that's good or resonant, I immediately want to put it down yeah. and go somewhere else, which is super strange. And I haven't even really ever examined why I do that, but it's like I don't I don't know why, but I want to put it down and like well, come still, back to it. It's still pure, right? At that yeah, point. And it's yeah. like you probably know how consuming it would be to finish it. And also like what if it doesn't work out? Or what if like Yeah, I think it is a little bit of that. It's like it's so there's something so precious about the discovery. Yeah. 
And when it feels like true or, I mean, the writing, I always view songwriting as, and music in general, it's just, it's all about that, keeping that channel open. I love that blessed unrest. That's why my record was called The Blessed Unrest. There's a beautiful quote from Martha Graham about keeping the channel open and it's not your job to judge your work. You're right. just this divine dissatisfaction with what you've made is the thing that carries you forward into the next thing you need to make. And I always loved that so much. And there's something so sacred and holy about being that vessel for a moment. But then I feel like as soon as you start to examine it, it go, it becomes like yeah. the editing process is so much less sexy than the discovery, you know, the, the toiling over the lyrics and making sure, does that scan right? Like, I think that was partly my aversion to co-writing for a long time because it felt like there was something so crass about... Uh the manipulation of words rather than this idea that you were sort of plucking them from the ether, that they were coming down like, you know, on angel's wings, really. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you, you can't really technically do those two things at the same time. Like once you start analyzing it, you are, you're switching. That's, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a totally different like mode of operation kind of like, it's just a, a different orientation. completely. Mm -hmm. And so that's like, tomorrow's use problem or opportunity yeah. really and so i think for me especially because i'm not used to starting things and uh, or starting or finishing them like i'm just used to kind of playing a, a part in the middle somewhere finding an idea of mine from seven months ago is like it's like it could be anybody's idea totally and so then i feel really energized to be like oh now, now let me take that and go into the studio and like i can make this because now now it's not even mine i'm just like yeah. helping finish it collaborating yeah yeah with yourself i think that's like the best iphone gift that there's been is that the voice yeah. memo thing. Oh, 100%. The voicemail is garbage. <laughs> voicemail is ridiculous. Garbage. But the voice memo? Yeah. Great. One out of two. <laughs> um, are you allowed to talk about anything you're doing or is it all shrouded in mystery? Um, I probably, I can't name things, but I am writing a record. I'm trying to write Thank God. a record. I'm doing my best. I hope it's closer than it feels, even if they're song kernels. I think there's a record already kind of swimming around. I've just really struggled with the motivation this year for some reason. I took like some big breaks and I took vacations and I we moved and um, I've just had a hard time like kind of you catching the wave, got engaged and just like felt very domestic in a mm. good, like That's that great. actually felt great. And it, I took, I'd been working so hard and like kind of fast and furious through the Tonys and then... Um, it kind of took a big break, which felt good. But now I can feel myself. I like I had a meeting earlier today about a musical theater project that I'm kind of just beginning. We're doing an adaptation of a book, and I just you're gonna write the songs. I'm writing the songs, cool. yeah. And I I got sent this book. I would announce it, but I think this I, it needs to have its proper announcing. But um, uh, I got sent this book, and I just was floored. I just I loved it so much. I loved the characters, and every time we sit in conversation and like talk about these people. I just can't wait to see like them on stage and I can't wait to give voice to their inner world. And and then there's another kind of musical theater project that's like, it doesn't even really have a home yet, but there's a collaborator that I met that I'm just really nuts over. So um, yeah, and the Waitress movie, oh my God, that's the that's next right. thing that's coming out is yeah. the Waitress movie. We did a, we did a, um, a filmed version of our stage show and while wow, I was you, in it, you were in it. Oh, cool. and it was our kind of like a 
sort of all-star cast. Some of our most beloved cast members came back and we did, this was after the pandemic. We were the first show to reopen after the Broadway shutdown. And um, we filmed the shows and that will be in theaters actually. I saw your last show with Emily. And, oh yeah. 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 So was that during that run? Yeah. Man. Yeah. That was incredible. And you, you had such an emotional moment. And I remember there was like, Oh yeah. When, it was so intense. I think I realized after singing She Used to Be Mine on stage, Rob's referring to like, I think there was a, there was quite a pause there as I was like sobbing on stage. And I think part of that was also knowing that that's going to be the last time I'm doing, I'm not going to do that role again anywhere. I'm not going to go, like I went into the show so many times and I love the show. It is what about my... the Vegas residency? <laughs> I mean, I think about it. Actually, I hate Vegas. Wait, you're still low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm lucky I get to sing that song whenever I want. And I love, I loved being in the show so much. It was so life affirming on so many levels. And, um, but I... I won't be doing that role again. Right. So I feel really lucky that we got to capture that. Yeah. Um, but no, I just sobbed. Oh my God, I couldn't get my shit together. I mean, when I got to work with you for your tour and, and spent all this time like working on arrangements for songs and stuff and, and seeing the rehearsals and, the, and some of the concerts and no matter what anyone on stage and myself and any of the ideas anyone threw at anything, like the highlight of that show was just whenever you would play by yourself. Aww. And that that was always so incredible just hearing you sing that song and, your, and the piano and like the, the build of it with... Because I know in the past you've done it where you would have the band come in midway through and stuff like that. But on this tour, it was just you and mm. it was always to me just the pinnacle of of performance so mm, i'm glad you. like that you got to have a, a moment with it at the end of that too and, and understand like how meaningful and important that was thank you yeah it's a real gift man it's like you know saying yes to those scary things like you're talking about like doing the thing you think you cannot do is is really it's a potent cocktail mm -hmm. you know there's because if there's any like kernel of truth there for you there's so much discovery like we were talking about have i have i appreciated only one percent of life yeah. because i've been sort of so focused on doing life the way i do life uh -huh. and you start to think about oh there's just there's so much to try that you think you can't or right. shouldn't or whatever it is it's really it's cool man i'm on so many drugs right now <laughs> it's it's very intimidating and like very wonderful yeah to realize like to be i'm 41 and it's like I don't know. I feel like more of like a child. And I, I mean, I'm around a child, but it's like... But isn't that so fucking exciting? Yes, That's I, I love... This is why I love aging. I don't yeah. love aging for what it does to my like body and my face, but I love the sense of just... It's actually not that w the world gets smaller and more codified. It's the opposite. Right. It's like totally expansive. Yeah. I think it's so, it's so beautiful. Like, thank God it's that way. Yeah, let's... Hold on for dear life. That feels like great. On that note, yeah. live your life, man. Live your life. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Love you too. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Rob Moose and Sarah Borellas for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the good stuff at talkhouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time. <laughs>